Welcome to Spark Science, where our mission is to share stories of human curiosity. I'm excited to share my conversation with Dr. Brian Dewsbury, who studies STEM education at University of Rhode Island. He's a great advocate when it comes to creating inclusive teaching environments and is also passionate about sharing science using every method at our disposal. One example is a recent partnership with filmmaker and documentarian Dr. Kendall Moore. They created a film called Can We Talk? Difficult Conversations with Underrepresented People of Color, Sense of Belonging, and Obstacles to STEM Fields. In this episode, we're going to get into Dr. Dewsbury's work, our own sense of belonging, and much, much more. Uh, I'm the king of Wakanda. Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> that's what I heard. <laughs> You know, I feel like there's like 5% of your listeners would have believed that the first time I said it. <laughs> so, <laughs> my actual position is uh, assistant professor of biology at the University of Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, um, a research faculty, I teach uh, intro bio classes and grad classes and course design. Um, but my research program focuses on the social context of learning. Um, we mostly focus on STEM classes. Okay. And like all STEM, or are you even kind of more focused on biology? All classes? STEM. All STEM. All STEM. Okay. I mean, and so that's science, know, technology, engineering, math for my right. listeners. Well, I mean, there's a little secret is I'm actually interested in all education, right? Mm. But <laughs> I'm in a biology department, so I'm contractually right. <laughs> obligated to just say STEM. And you have a biology background. <laughs> uh-huh. right? That's correct. That is correct. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, yeah, that is correct. That is correct. <laughs> Well, that's how always I feel too. Like I do this inclusion work, and that's why we're at this conference together. But um, I get people, and they ask me, Don't, "Do you want to be like the diversity officer for the whole university?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> I'm like, I think I'm gonna focus on like I'm gonna stay in my lane. I did get out of my physics and astronomy lane, and mm-hmm. I do all of STEM. But I don't. I, I'm a little different from you. I don't. I'm not interested in all of diversity. I kind of want to stick. Well, I'm scared. I'm well, it's scared. not. It's not even so much all of diversity. It's all of education. Yeah. Um, which, which I guess, we, right. You know, yeah. The scale similar, right? Yeah. Um, and and maybe it's not. When I say interest, um, I, I don't know if I've really thought about CDO positions. I think I'm seeing interest from the standpoint of the principles that we right. argue right. are good inclusive practices. Are applicable to any classroom, right? So right. you're you're interested in like right. foundational, like exactly. s- the sources of what makes good education, not necessarily right. good science. Right. Education. I mean, you know, answer the question: What does it mean to educate? Right. Right. That's really the question. I mean, inclusion aside, what does it mean to educate? Right. Period. That's deep. And that that question really is the question that will take you down a rabbit hole of everything. Um, but most particularly, what does it you know mean to understand the human experience? In this case, is the context of the classroom, right? right? So this is really just a subcontext of a bigger philosophical question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we can go into the time machine in a second because before mm-hmm. we get in that time machine, I do want to talk about this idea of what the mission is for this this podcast. Everything I do in mm-hmm, my work mm-hmm, is to really dispel that scientist stereotype. So mm-hmm. to like make sure that when people's here a scientist is walking through a university that they don't imagine Doc Brown from Back to the Future mm-hmm. or Einstein walking through that university. Right. Maybe we'll imagine you or they mm-hmm. might imagine me. That would be nice. Right. Like, that's my right. goal. It's I mean, like, I just last semester, I had a student walk up to me at the end of the first day of class and said to me, you are not what I thought my professor would look like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, it was a student of color, so she said it out of a, as a point of pride. Right. Um, but it, it 
it's uh, interesting in 2019, sorry, 2018, I guess, at the time, to still have that be a real thing people are thinking. You know? mm -hmm. so. I've also gotten mm -hmm. similar comments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me more about your work now at University of Rhode Island. Um, so our lab broadly focuses on the social context of teaching and learning. All right. So essentially we're interested in what goes into the learning process, what goes into the teaching process. Did you do degree to which things like race and class and privilege and, and bias affect how curricula are designed, how people approach the classroom setting, what chapters they choose, how they advise and mentor students, how students interact with each other, how they view the discipline, how they view themselves, how they view the professor. No matter how you how you choose to describe it, it is in fact a relationship. And the, the nature of that relationship is what's gonna drive how much learning actually happens. So really, we, we're deconstructing what that relationship could look like and what is the best formation of that relationship that will be um, supportive of really high quality outcomes. And, and by outcomes, I don't necessarily just mean getting A's and B's in class, right? I mean really developing a sense of meaning and purpose, you know, critical consciousness of the world, a sense of responsibility to others. Metacognition. You know, metacognition, you know, living for things greater than yourself. Brian talked more about this in his YouTube video from the Macmillan Learning STEM Summit. Let's take a listen. We are somewhat obsessed in all of our reports and all literature about all of the gaps in STEM learning. But what if we would have flipped that and asked ourselves, if you had a classroom where there weren't equity issues, where there weren't gaps in achievement, what would that class look like? What would that campus look like? What are the kind of things you would say as a professor? What would you teach? Would you be doing what you're doing now? The face-to-face -face portion of the education model has to look at something other than expert person comes and give you, gives you information that you can't get anywhere else because you can get it somewhere else. They have to feel connected to me. They have to believe what I say. They have to believe that I care. It's looking dead into the eyes of all 150 students. It's seeing in the corner of your eyes when a shoulder drops. It's seeing when somebody might be about to pull their phone out. I mean, all these are really, really high fine-tuned skills to kind of get the classroom feeling, feeling very, very close-knit. The class is not easy. You know, they work pretty hard, but we support every aspect of their learning. We're not cuddling them, we're teaching them how to be resilient for the future. We'll be right back with more Spark Science and Dr. Brian Duesberg. We're talking with Dr. Brian Dewsbury, who studies how we educate science students. I think that you're very lucky to have such, like, kind of a strong identity. You know, I'm mixed in my mom's, you know, from Taiwan and my dad's from right. California, but he's Mexican-American. I, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. So there's part mm -hmm. of me that's like, how dare you tell me what I should be? But there's also like, but it would be mm -hmm. nice to belong for once. Right. Right. So you, I don't know if you also had that element of like wanting to belong. Um, I think we all have that element. Yeah. I mean, even people who may explicitly state they don't. <laughs> um, what? I, well, I mean, this yeah, is this no, is putting on the sort of biology hat, right? You know, yeah. I, I think th there's some arguments out there. Jonathan Haidt's work and um, E.O. Wilson's work speaks to this a bit about how we tend to be groupish and tribe-oriented. 
So I, I don't see that necessarily as a negative. Um, just want to make a quick separation, though, of two different spaces, right? So when right. I talk about that nonconformity, I'm talking about professional spaces. Mm-hmm. And, and the results I speak of is, like, my classroom and, and, you know, the arguments that we're making and the data that supports those arguments. Um, in my personal life, um, you know, it, it is a tension. And I, I, I was not born here, right? I, I was born in the Caribbean. I was born in Trinidad and Tobago, to be specific. But I've lived here now for 20 years, most of it for school. And But now I'm married to American and my kids are mixed. And I live in a part of the country where there isn't a lot of people from my country. There might literally be five, <laughs> right? Um, and I think I took for granted in, in the early years I lived in America that I was still essentially Trinidadian, right? Like I was here studying, but I go home all the time and I was around a lot of Caribbean people. Um, but now in my later years... It's definitely a bit of a tension, right? It's, it's, but it's a, it's a weird space because when I'm in Trinidad, sometimes you don't feel as Trinidadian as you felt when you left. But I definitely don't consider myself American. Right. Um, maybe the glass half full way of thinking about that is um, a mix of a bunch of really positive things that makes me a unique person and a really broad perspective. Right. And I, I, I do appreciate that. Um, but I find myself consciously being aware of my lack of belonging in spaces where right. <laughs> I at least historically belonged or think I should. Right. <laughs> or maybe even wondering what exactly is this space <laughs> that I, you know, in this stage of my life, um, do feel that. Um, I, I would say, I'll just be brutally honest with you that I know when listeners. I, <laughs> well, you plural in this yeah, case. All right? yeah. yeah, I got you. Yeah. Um, that when I do return to Trinidad, that, that is my time of least tension with that question. Mm. You know, I still do relax to a degree that I, I, I never seem to be able to when I'm here. Yeah. So I can effectively code switch. I can go about and do what I need to do. I can, I can navigate different circles as a professional, as a person in my personal life. But but returning to Trinidad is the ultimate like relaxation point, you know. Yeah. Um, That'd be nice. I wish I had a Trinidad. <laughs> I li- like the, literally the only time I, I don't have to think about this is when I hang out with the only other person of color that mm. grew up in my small white town, and we when we hang out, mm. like that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe some family stuff, but even because the two families are different. Right. And it, well, the other piece to this, and I'm sure you could speak to it. Yeah is it's so hard to explain that to people yeah like it's it's hard to the point where i actually stopped trying yeah right I got, <laughs> well no yeah. to you i can't this is why yeah. i'm saying this to you right yeah. because and, and as somebody who who maybe spends a lot of my professional life learning how to articulate things right mm-hmm. whether i'm teaching or writing a paper or something it's really interesting to me how even to so many closest people in my life i can't fully explain what that means and what what you have to do to navigate your daily life knowing that you're sort of always in code switch mode yes, yes. <laughs> right like you're always in code switch mode yeah and like little by little it, it chips at you and then you need like some point some inflection point where you could just 
get that tiredness out and that's what gives you the energy to come back and, and be yeah. you know and, and I know to, to your listeners it might sound like you know it means like your life is a daily struggle actually no you know I, I do have a good life great family great job I mean I do enjoy what I do mm-hmm. um, but it's just that little I don't know X percent of yeah. it where, you, where you're just aware somewhere layers below the surface mm-hmm. that what you're in fact doing is constantly code switch yeah, yeah, it's constant vigilance. Yeah. And it's so crazy. Um, I It's weird to not be able to talk to your kid about that. Yeah. Or talk to your spouse about that. Right? Yeah. And so I I almost went too far. I had this, I think I was telling you the story about really talking to my kid about being that she's white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But she's not, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's mixed and she sees herself as mixed. And I was pushing that upon her mm-hmm. because she wasn't having the same experiences as me and, mm-hmm. and because she could pass. Mm-hmm. I mean, she doesn't choose to pass. Mm-hmm. And I should have given her that option. But mm-hmm. my grandma did the exact same thing, yeah. sat me down and was like, you're not Mexican. I was like, what? Like, And so somebody well, else making that decision for you, even people yeah. of color, even people who are supposed to be like your allies because there yeah. are so many layers of power yeah. dynamics and hierarchy well, it's, it's complicated. I, 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 that's a sensitive topic because yeah. my, my, I have two boys, they're five and two, and this is going to come up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and, my kid's 10, and, so it's already come And up. literally, they have so many identities they could actually literally choose from, mm-hmm. depending on how they grow. Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they can embrace being Jewish. <laughs> they can embrace being Trinidadian. Mm-hmm. They can embrace being African American. Mm-hmm. They can um, just see themselves as mixed or hit right. no report on that question they ask you. <laughs> right, yeah. um, and I think I underestimated how not knowing what they may nav- or how they may navigate that, how much that frightens me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Partly because, well, a couple of reasons. One is, selfishly, selfishly, I would love for them to embrace their Caribbean heritage yeah. in a big way, right? But I have no control over it. Well, except for taking them there and, and reading books and stuff like that, right? But I can only do so much. I do that Number too. two, <laughs> <laughs> no, right? we all do it, right? We're like, my team, my team. <laughs> I have two teams. Like, right? These two teams. So number two <laughs> is, um, depending on how... You know this nation operates politically in the next decade or two. Mm. Um, there are two black men in America, and depending on the circles they navigate, yeah. um, you know I've spent enough time here to know that you you need to be aware of certain things, right? We we're gonna have to have the talk, right? Mm. Um, and I've seen in other cases, in other cases where like international people or mixed uh, marriages produce mixed kids and. And I've seen siblings grow up and one make a choice and the other make a different choice. Absolutely. And it's a really actually fascinating thing. <laughs> um, and uh, It happened in my family. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, not, exa- not obviously the exact same right. what you're talking about. But yeah, yeah, somebody picked to be more Mexican, somebody picked to be more yeah. Chinese. Yeah, right, somebody right. Somebody picked to be like, I'm just going to be as, you know. <laughs> under the radar. Under right? the radar as possible, right? <laughs> And then it's changed over yeah. the years too. Yeah, yeah, right. I've seen that too, right? Yeah. Like they, they 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 adopted one identity in a particular space, but then when they moved to a certain part of yeah. the country, yes, they kind of really latch onto a different part of it. Yeah. Um, or they just become more aware and then become more interested. Yeah. And have their own kids. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because these are things that we we've already been talking about it for mm. like you know a fair amount of time, but mm. that's not the questions people ask me. They're like. 
do you want her to be a scientist? <laughs> you know, I get that a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. And we, my daughter and I barely talk about her career. She's 10. Mm-hmm. But we definitely have to talk about the societal things. Well, you know, the um, if you don't know enough about these things, you could easily convince yourself that, like, if you just don't talk about it, you yeah. know, everything will just work itself out. Yeah. Um, Society is going to fill those gaps for yeah, you right, if you don't do right, it. Same right. with sex ed and yeah, with right. talking about other <laughs> right, things. Right. I really wanted to talk to you because I'm going to kind of do a spoiler alert for our listeners first and just talk about how I first heard about you at the Inclusive Science Communication Conference and you were there talking about a documentary that you um, helped create. It was it was your idea and then you found a filmmaker mm-hmm. to help you make this um Film and I, can you tell us a little bit about that? Film? Well, I just uh, first of all want to again give full credit to Professor Kendall Moore because you know she actually made the film. Yeah, she, did. <laughs> she 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 knows all the ways to make films well. <laughs> She's been making films since the eighties, um, and she has a lot of really um, exciting products. And I think this is one of them. Uh, before I came to URI, before I met Professor Moore, when I was a grad student, I had. Um, founded, I guess, uh, a web interview series called Confluence. And we founded that, uh, me and some colleagues, we founded that series based on the fact that the students that we taught realized they didn't really understand how many different things you can do in science. Mm -hmm. And they also didn't, at least in the FIU context, didn't really see a lot of examples of people who had life stories that were similar to their own. What's FIU? Sorry, Florida International University. That's that's where they grasp. And what my experience doing that really taught me was there's different ways to communicate this message, right? I think for me, since I've always been focused on, on you know, equity issues, issues of inclusion, I think if you're going to accelerate the needle on that, <laughs> we can't just rely on one mechanism to get the message across, right? So Which is we, published papers. Exactly. And, and again, I'm not, let's be clear here that there's great value in that process. But I felt, especially based on my last experience, that getting this into some kind of media format would be exciting. So I had this idea, I approached Professor Moore, who initially thought it probably would have taken a lot longer than it did, but she taught a class where um, her students, specifically a young man named Jassy Alexander, who really just ran with it. He's the assistant director, officially. Um, That's such an experience and like it, an opportunity for a student. Absolutely. I mean, That's awesome. you know. I just like to see when students kind of take control of their educational experience in that way, right? And so it was done in about six months, and it, it you saw the preview of it. You saw the, the original screening of it. I was not there. My flight was late. I hate you. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, he does. Um, I had to pay him for this so, interview. So, we, well, you know, he still owe me some. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was screened at that same conference, and um, we've really been overwhelmed at the, the national response to it. Um, right, it's, you know, it's blowing up. A lot of universities want to see it, and and, mm-hmm. and the way Professor Moore runs it, she doesn't just show it. You know, it comes with a discussion with faculty development around it, um, because that's the kind of film it is. It's not just to sit and watch, eat popcorn, and leave. It's to sit, reflect in it, and actually ask yourself, you know, are these voices within my institution, and what is my responsibility to hear that and respond to it? 
so there's like resources associated with the, the film that people can like audience participation sort of is what you're saying yes and then she sort of brings that with her when oh, she, when she shows presents it. It. exactly okay. when she presents the film so she wouldn't just like send you a DVD right right, <laughs> right. there are showings right, right. and, and I, right. I think uh, Brian suggesting mm-hmm. or mentioning that um, I was at this inclusive um, SciComm conference and I was also at SACNIS which our listeners have heard uh, mm-hmm. many times the the national organization that focuses on racial equity in, in mm-hmm. science mm-hmm. and I missed both showings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's, like, that's a kind of friendly watching yeah that's right that's where that's this right. is going to give you a sense of what we're talking about here's a clip from their documentary Can We Talk Difficult Conversations with Underrepresented People of Color Sense of Belonging and Obstacles to STEM Fields I don't know that the sciences will ever be more welcoming. But there's undeniable privilege that comes with, with being white. I don't, I haven't always felt um, included or embraced. I taught them to say they're an indigenous scientist. <sighs> Most of what I felt in STEM is just isolation, to be honest. I felt that there was always this um, assumption that I was dumb, that I was stupid or less than compared to like, my um, classmates. I felt like I always had a chip on my shoulder, like there was something to prove. And I felt like when I came home, it was very different. Like at home, there wasn't this surprise that I was intelligent. It was more of like an expectation. I remember having a college counselor and um, getting close to college application times um, and sharing with her that I wanted to go to medical school. Um, And I remember specifically saying to her, uh, mentioning one of the Ivy Leagues that I wanted to go to for medical school and being met with, oh, you should never apply there because people like you don't get into those schools. So you should just um, decide to do something else. I think you need to uh, tailor your ambitions more towards this field or the other fields um, because my dreams, I guess, for her were a little too big. Resistance to change um, is is the largest challenge that we have. I don't think there is a lack of, I don't think there's a lack of goodwill. But at the same time a person may have goodwill, you know, they're going to be resistant to changing a system where they have power. We'll be back with more on science education with Dr. Dewsbury. We're talking about a sense of belonging with Dr. Brian Dewsbury from the University of Rhode Island Biology Department. So I want to talk about just like some pop culture because I am a mm-hmm. pop culture like child. Like I, TV was my first friend. Mm-hmm. I hugged it and used mm-hmm. to like say mm-hmm. I love you. Mm-hmm. And my well, daughter does the same thing. You unpack that later. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. I love TV and it will never leave me. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of TV do you like? that actually, in, my, in your opinion, actually showcases science in a good way or in a terrible way? Um, honestly, there's not a lot of TV for me that, that showcases science in a good way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the ones that I, I ended up liking and sort of using my class are like the Blue Planet series, for example. Mm-hmm. I, right. I hear, I get a lot of plug right. for that on this show. Right. Um, but you know it's interesting like one comedy that i it was actually a funny comedy 
um, Big Bang Theory. Yeah. It's funny. But it uh, really reiterated all of the worst science stereotypes ever, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and they don't they don't like mention it. They, no, That's they the don't. They, right, right, right. They don't they don't point it out. And and yeah. you know it was only for what eight years, and so it it said it said well it I think they just ended season Maybe. like this year or something, yeah. right? So it says something about the the permeability of that show and the mm-hmm. the popularity of it. And and how it kind of aggrandized these these stereotypes that you and I quite frankly are trying to work against, yeah. right? Um, so that that's problematic, right? That's problematic for me. Um, maybe it's comfort. It, I feel like maybe it's comforting to people. Those stereotypes are comforting. Like they're like I was right all along. Right. You know. I don't know. Right. Because I remember, for example, and it wasn't just okay. That this is not essential. What I'm about to mention, but like Friends, right? Yeah. What was on right. for nine years? Yeah. Like how you have a show in New York City, you have like no people of color, like mm-hmm. one in season six. What? <laughs> right? Would, like, but but no, a random person. Right. <laughs> but but it it but it was an eight year show. Everybody loved it. Mm-hmm. it classic, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it it says something to me, you know, that these things are the things that rise to the top. Um, do you know uh, what I don't like? And it's a sci-fi show. I, I keep on cutting you off. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. That's... Um, everyone loves Joss Whedon because of Buffy the uh, Vampire Slayer mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Angel. And he made um, uh, Serenity was the movie, but uh, Firefly was the one season show. Mm-hmm, and everyone yeah. loved it. And it was like, this is the most amazing thing ever. And it was set in the future where mm-hmm. the U.S. and China have joined forces. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but there are no Asians in the whole show. And I was always, I loved the show. So how did they join... There were no, and then they would all the all the characters would speak like terrible Mandarin. I don't speak Mandarin, but my mom would be like, "That's not that word, right?" right? And she loved the show too. But like, it's those little things yeah. that they don't they don't see what would is so obvious to us. Right. Like you're gonna have a future where China is one of the, like the main powers, mm. but there's no Asian. People. <laughs> well, that was like, my what? my friend. My friends used to tell me that about Red October, but I spoke <laughs> Russian in that, and my, my Russian friends were like. Yeah, that's not that. <laughs> well, you know, people who don't speak it have no idea. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I I'll be honest with you. Like, I especially in the last I don't know eight nine years of my life, I haven't I don't watch that much TV. I do. I have a TV yeah. really just to watch soccer because that's mm. like one of the most important things in my life. Football. You know what? I, you know, that, what that's, what that's the code switching thing, right? I have yeah. to figure out the audience and the, which word you can understand. Anyway, so um, but, but but my what I was going to go with that is is in terms of kind of pop culture. To your point about the, the potential power we could have is we we think of ways to message the things that are important, right? So documentary is one thing, podcasts are one thing. Kind of trying to see ourselves as the innovators, right? Um, because honestly, the little I've seen out there, it's not enough for me to tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m., you know? What did you like in TV that you could modify? I'm just going to steal this idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to watch and really enjoy Inside the Active Studio. Yes! Right? And that, and that was that was That was sort of inspired confluence in that you want people who are embedded in its profession, but you want them to actually reflect on what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. That's essentially what interview was, a reflection. Right. Um, Especially in a profession where people are typically asked things like, you know, their last girlfriend and crap like that. <laughs> He's asking them things about, you know, you played this role. Like, how, is that, how does that impact right. you to be a HIV survivor or whatever? And then um, he'd show them pictures and be like, you know, make some sort of mm-hmm. emotional connection. Right. and be like, remember this. Right, right. <laughs> um, it's like, I was trying to forget that. Bro, yeah. you know. um, right, he, so, he so did that, used to show pictures, right? 
Uh, well, yeah, not every yeah. episode, yeah. but but um, so that's what we were trying to capture with Confluence, and um, you know, you and I talked about this offline, but but your idea about like science around the world, yeah, is something I've kind of had. I think you you definitely articulated it better than I did. But I was inspired by like Anthony Bourdain's show right. on how he you know is about food, but no, it's really about the human experience around food and his and own reflection, the, right? And his own reflection, right? Um. So, so maybe I guess what I'm getting at to in aggregate here is media and shows that really bring out the human aspect of what we do, right? And it's not performative, right? It's not, yeah. it's not we need to kind of sing and dance and make this, you know, excited. I, mean, I think there's probably a role for that, but that's not, my, my, my professional focus is always about not leaving your humanity at the door and then becoming this other thing. Like how does your humanity impact what you do? We'd like to thank Dr. Dewsbury for taking the time away from facilitating a multi-day workshop on inclusion in STEM to talk to me. Thank you to Dr. Moore for the clips from Can We Talk? You can find out more about this film or watch more by going to kendallmoredocfilms.com. That's K-E-N-D-A-L-L-M-O-O-R-E-D-O-C-films.com. If you want to find out more about Dr. Dewsbury's work, go to seasprogram.net. That's S-E-A-S program.net. Also, thank you to Macmillan Learning STEM Summit. Spark Science is sponsored by WWU and created in partnership with KMRE. Spark Science is recorded on location and in Bellingham, Washington at Western Washington University. The producers are Suzanne Blaze, Regina Barbara DeGraff, and Robert Clark. Student editors are Julia Thorpe, Andrew Norton, and Zarek Coakley. Additional editing is done by WWU Video Services. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page or tweet us at SparkScienceNow. Thanks for joining us, and if you want to listen to past episodes, visit SparkScienceNow.com. Thank you.